Hi, everyone. This is Aaron for Sola Network. And today I am here with pastor and author Ken Shigematsu. Um, pastor Ken, he wrote this book, Now I Become Myself, How Deep Grace Heals Our Shame and Restores Our True Self. I don't know if you can see it right there. Well, you can't see it. I'm blurred out right now, but I will get that for you. Um, pastor Ken, thank you for coming on to talk about your book. Um, can you give us a brief introduction about yourself and about your book? Sure. Thanks, Aaron. It's really a pleasure to be with you and your uh, viewers and listeners. So I'm originally from Japan, but have spent most of my life here in North America. Uh, growing up mostly in Metro Vancouver, I did some schooling in the Chicago area, in the Boston area, and was actually uh, living in Southern California for a brief time, involved in a church plant and doing some writing for one of the local newspapers, and then came up here to Vancouver and I've been serving as a pastor here in the city since 1996. Wow. Um, how did writing this book come about exactly? Well, I've observed that the experience of, of shame isn't just confined to people who've been through abuse or trauma, but people who are very successful in a worldly sense also mm. struggle with this feeling that they're not quite enough. Mm. And so I wanted to explore this theme and to also see how spiritual practices and an, an experience of God's love, not just a head knowledge of God's love, but a deep personal experience of God's love could heal a person from shame and enable them to live from what Thomas Merton describes as their truest self. Mm. Uh, you mentioned um, shame and, and leaders um, particularly. Would you please give us maybe a brief rundown on your your theology of shame or how you address it in the book? And uh, you also talked about like uh, the covering of ourselves, which which I found to be super helpful. If you could talk about that, and if you could talk about that, how that relates to ministry endeavors, I think that that was kind of a, a kind of a brilliant way to open the book. It, it's it's rather uh, applicable, I think. Yeah, I don't know if it's just unique to leaders, but uh, we who lead, I think, carry a lot of weight and experience quite a bit of stress. And, and so we, I think, tend to be prone to feelings that we're not quite enough. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been a student, but for many years after Aaron, I had a dream that I was about to take an exam in math or in French that I was totally unprepared for. Mm. And in this dream, I'm feeling this anxiety that my grades are going to just sink through the floor. I don't have that dream as often these days, but I have another dream. I have a dream that I'm about to speak somewhere, preach, give a talk, a speech, and I have no idea what I'm going to say. So I reach for a piece of paper, happen to have one here on my desk, scratch out an outline, get up in front of a group of people. I look down and all I see is a number sign, an exclamation mark a greater than sign, the number three, and I have no idea what these symbols are supposed to trigger in my memory. And someone gets up in the auditorium, walks out, other people follow them, and soon the space is empty. And what these dreams are telling me is that at a subconscious level as a human being, as a leader, I don't know if, if, if it's unique to being a leader, I don't think so. I have a fear of not being enough of being deficient in some way. And the Bible and social science have a name for this, shame. Mm. And shame originates, as, as we who 
believe in the scriptures know. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve originally didn't experience the emotion of shame. They were naked and without shame, according to Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. But when the devil, the one who didn't feel like he was quite enough, whispered in their ear, if you'll only turn from God, you'll be so much more. You'll be fulfilled and free. And Adam and Eve turned from God. They literally and figuratively bite. And they don't become more fulfilled and free. They don't become a better version of themselves. They feel like something has been taken from them. Something is missing. And so they cover themselves with fig leaves. They hide in the bushes. And because we experience shame, we also have this tendency to try and cover ourselves with some kind of fig leaf or hide in some way. Uh, shame causes us either to go small and shrink back or try and go big in order to prove that we are worthy, that, that we are valid in, in, in some way. And uh, Thomas Merton, the brilliant writer on the spiritual life, said that we human beings tend to feel invisible. And so we wrap ourselves in bandages of achievement or material possessions or pleasures or education or building a reputation so that we will be seen as special. Mm. And when we try to prove that we are worthy or special by what we do what we achieve, what we have, what we experience, or by how others view us. Martin says we're living from the false self. Uh, we're, we're projecting an image of ourselves. Um, and the way to overcome that, as I write about in the book, is to have this deep experience of God's love. Yeah. I, I, I think that it's very well thought out, really comprehensive and, and quite clear the way that you frame shame in this way. Um, I especially like how you relate it to pastors and leaders, like I mentioned before. Now, one of the sections in your book, it actually makes a point to confess um, in terms of combating shame. Uh, can you talk about this a little bit more? And if you relate it to the importance of pastors and husbands and high achievers and leader type of people, this, this part of confession, because I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't know if that happens um, when we're talking about leaders or high achievers, pastors, even husbands. Yeah, Aaron, uh, confession is a very counterintuitive kind of practice. So when we're feeling uh, shame or guilt or regret, the last thing we probably want to do, especially if we're trying to create a certain image or aura of ourselves as a right. person, right. confess that to someone else. But it can be powerfully healing and, and, and liberating. Brene Brown, the social scientist who specializes in shame research, points out that if you put shame in a Petri dish and want to see that shame grow exponentially, mm. just add the elements of secrecy, silence, and judgment. Mm. But if you want that shame to be extinguished, to, to evaporate, mm. just add the element of empathy, someone's empathetic response. And I know that a number of your uh, listeners and viewers are, are pastors. And, you know, if you're a pastor out there, you know that even though people may perceive us as godly, we are not above envying others and, mm. and, and, and comp comparing yourself and mm. competing with others. I tend to be a competitive person by nature. And so um, this morning I went for a swim, as I like to do in the mornings. And I'm not an, an especially fast swimmer, but if I'm 
about to reach the wall and I see someone about to pass me in the other lane, I tend to speed up to yeah. try and get to the wall first. Like, yeah. If I can only touch the wall before that guy or yeah. that uh, woman, I'll feel a little better about myself. Yeah. And uh, I can compare myself to other pastors who seem to uh, be more successful, to be more creatively fruitful than, than me. And, and so in the book, I, I write about how we can overcome those envious comparisons and live with more contentment and joy. Yeah. Um, not only do you talk about confessing, um, but you talk about reframing shame. Now, I think that when people talk about this, they can mean different things. Uh, can you explain what you mean by reframing shame? Yeah. So um, I, I write about confession in the book and how uh, powerful of a practice it is. And I actually share this sort of embarrassing um experience uh from way back when i was a student and uh i i described how one summer on summer break i i went on a trip and i met someone that i was powerfully attracted to and uh there was a lot of chemistry between us at least on my end and uh but a relationship of any kind was out of bounds because she was in a relationship with someone else. I was intending to initiate a relationship with someone back home. But one night we met up in a public place and uh, we were uh, on a sidewalk um, and we spontaneously started kissing and, and making out a little. We were in a public place, so uh, there were some sort of natural um, restraints in place. Some people may think, oh, it's not such a big deal. But I had violated my code and my conscience, so I was feeling quite a bit of guilt and shame. And uh, not long afterwards, I confessed that to a trusted Christian friend of mine. And he was disappointed. He teared up. But he said, Ken, I love you. And in that experience of confession, I felt like an enormous weight, a burden, had fallen off of my shoulders. And I just it just felt so so freeing. And when we confess something, whether we're a pastor or father or in some other role, um, that we feel shame or guilt over, and then uh, the person that we talk to, whether it's a trusted friend, a pastor, a spiritual director, a counselor, whoever, says, in effect, I'm not going anywhere or welcome to the human race, that gives us a window into how high and how deep and how wide and how long is God's love for us in Christ. And so mm. when we've done something that we feel guilty about or ashamed of, the last thing we want to do in most cases is to confess that. But when we confess something to someone who's trustworthy, it can be so freeing, so liberating. Yeah. I, I kind of want to keep talking about this a little bit. So that story, it, it, it hit me, not because of the content necessarily, but I think just because you were willing to share something that that you know you could possibly find shameful uh as a pastor like yourself was it hard for you to put that down into words and to get it into the book yeah it, it, in some ways it was and this is sort of my rule of thumb uh, first of all if i've worked through an experience i'm willing to share it i'm also willing to share something if i feel that it might be helpful for someone else so it's not mm. so much about sort of experiencing catharsis on my end i think that's right but if it can serve someone else in a in a similar situation, I, I don't mind being vulnerable and 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 writing or, or speaking about that. And Aaron, um, I know I've meandered a little bit, but you talked about sort of reframing 
um, that can occur through a confession. And so right. I guess this to this, this Christian friend of mine. And then I happened to be in uh, Southern California years later, years after okay. this happened. And um, I dropped by the, I think it was Fuller Seminary. There was a professor of leadership at the time named Bobby Clinton, who okay. has written on the development of leaders, especially in vocational ministry. Mm. And so even though it had happened years before, I shared this experience with Bobby Clinton and he sort of paused. I, I, I write about this in the book. I don't mention Bobby Clinton's name. <laughs> and he said, you know, a failure at this level um, may be really beneficial for you because it wasn't, you know, quote, catastrophic. Mm. It was a failure, but it wasn't catastrophic. And right. it can serve as a kind of warning right. uh, for you to avoid something, you know, more serious in terms of a breach in the future so God can really redeem this. Yeah. And so confessing that to Bobby Clinton years later, I think he was at Fuller, um, helped reframe the failure as an opportunity to learn and to grow and hopefully avoid something more serious in the future. Mm. No, I, I think that's really helpful. Um, I want to circle back a little bit too. Uh, you talked about comparison, um, maybe being envious, uh, maybe jealous uh, with others. So how can you see that relationship uh, between envy and shame and comparing um, as a pastor uh, maybe even as an author, I, I, I just want you to talk a little bit more about that. What's the relationship there exactly? And I want you to put it into to different categories for me, so that maybe I can I can try to see it from my side. Yeah. So um, envy and shame are our close cousins. So um, envy says that someone has it better than me. Okay. And then, and then shame says someone is better than me. And so those are closely related. And, uh, you know, as, as we know, Aaron and as, uh, our, our friends and, um, the folks listening to who are pastors, uh, as I alluded to earlier, pastors are not over or, or above, uh, you know, the possibility of experiencing envy and jealousy. I, I certainly am not. Mm. And so, uh, you asked me to weigh in as a pastor and as an author. So, yeah. There was a, a, an author that um, I didn't know personally, but I sort of knew about him from afar who had all, uh, also um, been serving as a pastor. And uh, I, I felt like he was so creative and so prolific that mm. I envied his output. Mm. And uh, I felt that maybe a, a good response would be to do something for him. I, I didn't know him. So I, what could I do? So I read okay. his books and then uh, gave him a five-star review and it was a, a great book. And so I could do that honestly. Yeah. So I find that um, if I envy someone, if um, I can do something for them, pray for them, that really helps. Bonhoeffer said in cost of, no, it was not cost of discipleship, but in life together, uh, if um, you're in a relationship with someone who seems difficult to you, if you pray for them, that person who was previously a kind of enemy to you becomes a brother or sister. Uh, they take on the countenance of Christ. Mm, and so that mm. helps us overcome envy. And then if you can get to know someone, um, that really helps as well. Uh, it was Samuel Johnson who struggled a lot with envy, and uh, he came to the realization that the world is so full of misery that no one is to be envied. So there was a, a pastor that I knew of um, years ago who I um, – have become close friends with, and he's very successful um, on lots of different levels. But as I got to know him, 
I learned some things in his life. Uh, I won't go into detail on those uh, in this conversation. That, sure. Uh, caused him great pain and, and quite a bit of suffering. And I realized that though he had many admirable qualities, he was not to be envied. And every person is either suffering or is close to someone who is, and so they're not to be envied. Yeah, uh, I I love that. I love the actionable, I guess, response to that. I I feel like you're you're what you're saying is that hey, if, if you start to feel this way, if you can reach out and do something for that person, do something helpful, pray for the person for sure, uh, that can help combat your your shame and envy and and all those other feelings. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it certainly helps. You know, when I wrote that five star review <laughs> and then or submit, I just felt like lighter and, yeah. and, and 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 freer and it's very counterintuitive when we envy someone we might want to part of us might want to tr- try and drag them down but if we can uh love them serve them bless them in some way uh as counterintuitive as it sounds uh yeah we are we are blessed and and, and set free now that I, I think that's super hopeful i think that's a very hopeful positive outlook a very very christian outlook i should say <laughs> like like christ right mm-hmm. um your book is hopeful um, I want to know if you can talk about beauty and beauty and joy. Talk about beauty and joy because you, you make mention of those towards the end of the book. I specifically want to know how you pursue it um, in in what I'm sure is a very busy schedule for you. How do you pursue beauty and joy in your life? Yeah. So, yeah, and you're from California, right? Or I, yeah, California, so yeah, 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 yeah. A California. Um, <laughs> Sort of a story or, or research finding from Stanford, which I think is north of you. Uh, so an experiment was done at, at Stanford where research participants were asked to go on a 90-minute walk. Half the group was asked to walk one of the busiest streets in Silicon Valley. The other half of the group was asked to walk a beautiful scenic wooded trail near the campus. After their 90-minute walks, each research participant was put into an fMRI machine. Mm. And the scan showed that for those who walked the busy street in Silicon Valley, that their brains were defaulting to experiencing regret over something in the past or anxiety about something in the future. Their their brains were just ruminating with with worry. Mm. But the scans also showed that those who walk the beautiful scenic wooded trail near the university campus that the part of their brain associated with feeling anxiety, self-criticism, and depression had actually gone quiet. The experience of of shame involves self-analysis, self-critique, self-condemnation, which are primarily left brain activities. Mm. When we're exposed to beauty, that lights up the right hemisphere of our brain, literally leaving less room for for shame to work. And and so um, one of the ways that we can experience peace, peace with God, peace with ourselves and our world is to expose ourselves to, to beautiful places, things and 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 beautiful people. I, I don't mean that in a superficial sense, but in a sure. sense. And so um it might mean so for me every morning I walk our golden retriever down a a wooded street not far from our home. It's a beautiful street. Mm-hmm. And um that awakens me to something of, of of God's love and wonder and creativity. Mm. Other people might want to put themselves before a beautiful work of art each day or listen to gorgeous music, but but beauty can become a window into God's love for us and into into joy. You're telling me I don't need to bask in my shame. 
Right. Yeah. And and that there are portals to to joy and uh, a sense of, of gratitude. Psychologists tell us that about 50% of a person's subjective sense of happiness is likely based on what they call a set point of happiness, their, their temperament and character. And about 10% of their happiness is going to be shaped by circumstances. But a whopping 40% of our subjective experience of happiness and joy comes from intentional activity. And so whether it's it's uh, putting ourselves on a pathway of beauty or a gratitude exercise or spending time with um, people we love and who love us uh, can help us experience more of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pastor Ken. Um, I want to give you another question because I, I realized I didn't put something in here. I want to talk to you about being Asian Canadian and how did that influence shame in your life how you how you came about writing this book even just what you experience as a, as a pastor i want to hear how your um yeah i guess how your ethnicity how your identity plays a part in all of this if at all yeah no no for sure so um as i write about in the book as a teenager i was quite rebellious uh, i got into shoplifting and joyriding and some small-time drug dealing. I was busted. I was uh, arrested shoplifting, and um, my parents uh, came to uh, uh, Kmart to pick me up. I was, I think, 14 years old or so. And uh, afterwards, my m- mom and dad took me to my room in our home, had me kneel Asian style. So I may look Asian, but I'm not very flexible. And I, that <laughs> sort of kneeling Asian style has always been difficult for me. And my dad struck me a couple of times, which was very common for immigrant um, parents uh, at the time as a as a means of discipline. So I, I, that was, that was fine and, and probably timely. But I remember my dad speaking to me about how I had brought shame on him, on my mom, on our family. Mm. And I felt shame in that moment. And a a lot of people today say shame is completely uh, destructive. But when we experience shame short term, it can be a motivator for us to live in a different kind of way. And it wasn't long after that I um, became truly open to a new path of life as I met Christ. And so that's one way that shame has shaped me. Let let me offer another way. you know, some years ago, a couple of authors from the United States came up to Vancouver, came uh, to our church here uh, in in in, uh, in 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 the city of Vancouver, and uh, they looked around and they they commented, "We've never seen a church as diverse as this one in the United States. Churches often are racially segregated." Mm. And um, they they uh, they interviewed me uh, for a chapter in their book, and um, they said. How did you move from this church, which we understand used to be all white and mostly uh, white Anglo-Saxon senior citizens, to becoming so diverse racially, uh, so intergenerational? And I, they said, what was your plan? What was your strategy? And I said, you know, I didn't have much of a conscious strategy. And the authors then asked me the question, well, tell us a little bit about your your life story. And I explained that I was born in Japan, mm-hmm. born in Tokyo. And when I was young, we moved briefly to New York City, and then for five years to London, England, and then to, to Vancouver, to Canada. And then I went off to college in the Chicago area, went back to Japan to work in the corporate world for the Sony Corporation. I went to the Boston area to go to seminary, went to Southern California to help start this new church, and then back to Vancouver. And then the author said, oh, that's 
uh, it's a lot of different places where you've lived. Where yeah. do you really feel at home? That mm. you know, honestly, I don't. I've never really felt at home anywhere. I, I was raised by loving parents, loving family. So I, I, I don't mean to um, suggest that I'm ungrateful, but I've never really felt at home anywhere, uh, including Japan, including Vancouver. And then the author said, "This is what we think you're doing because you have never felt at home anywhere. You have set a table where you hope." that everyone feels welcome, especially those uh, who have not felt at home anywhere. And mm. so I think that um, was accurate and true. Uh, and it came out of my experience of being a minority and Asian mm. uh, here, in, here in Canada. So um, yeah. that being of Japanese ancestry, uh, uh, being of Asian ancestry has certainly shaped my life identity and ministry. Yeah. Well, Pastor Ken, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. And thanks for sharing a little bit personally too. Um, I was blessed by your book. I think that this interview will be a blessing for others as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Great to be with you and with your friends.